0: Thanks, Chad. (sighs) Prabhu Eshu Cha Nawat Salaam Prabhu Eshu Cha Nawat Sagarana Salaam. May the peace of our Lord Jesus be on all of you. That's how I would greet you in India, and that is the greeting that the churches in India have charged me with bringing back to Sovereign Grace. They were very clear uh, that I was to bring back to you a message of thankfulness and of prayer, that they are praying for you and thankful that you guys were uh, gracious enough to send Amy and I on this trip to India to, uh, to deal with the pastors there and to teach them. Amy and I, uh, my wife is the one in the uh, in the sari. In case you didn't put that together, uh, we are we've been attending Sovereign Grace Church now for uh, somewhere around a year, and uh, we're hoping to be missionaries one day. Our desire is to serve the Lord in missions uh, full time, and so we were very thankful when Sovereign Grace agreed to send us to India, both to see what John Cook's ministry there looks like, what he's doing. Uh, how he's working there and also to uh, be able to get some experience over in overseas ministry, get our feet wet in trying to train and teach pastors. And we really thank you for that opportunity. It was a great, Opportunity. We left Bakersfield uh, on October 16th, Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. We arrived in Amrauti, India, uh, which is in the state of Maharashtra in central India, on Friday, October 19th at 12.30 a.m. So if you're counting those hours up, that was a 54-hour travel time. Uh, we took four flights and over 13,000 13, miles of traveling to get to Amrauti. Uh, We left Amrauti Saturday, October 27th at 3 p.m. and uh, arrived in Bakersfield on Tuesday, October 30th at 4 p.m. If you're counting those hours, that's 85 hours, Uh, four flights, two train rides, uh, three hotel stays, and 13,500 miles. You may be wondering where the extra 500 came from. We'll get to that a little later. Uh, so when we arrived in Amrauti, we had Friday and Saturday and Sunday to sort of take it easy to see the ministry that was going on in India. Uh, the conference wasn't starting until Monday evening. We visited the churches at Walgau, Chandua Railway, and Tusa. All these churches are churches that have been planted by pastors who are trained at Grace Bible College, which we are now supporting, uh, and have been sent out by New Creation Ministries, which is the church planning branch of Indigenous Ministries International, the mission group that we're working with there. Um it was a great blessing to go to these churches and to see the believers, especially the church at Tusa. We were there on a Sunday morning and we saw that the pastor there had raised up five leaders in the church um, who had taken on the responsibilities of elders, uh, which is a real big deal. A lot of the churches are not having the people take possession of the church and really take responsibility for what's going on there. So it was a great to see that. Um We also visited the Bible College. We were able to be there for one of their chapel services, visit with the students there, and see what's going on. There's currently 40 students enrolled at the Bible College, uh, and they are in a is a three-year program uh, where they go through the Word of God and through the disciplines of being a church leader or pastor. Um, They make great sacrifices to come to this Bible College. If you're married and you go to the Bible College. one semester, maybe one year of your three years you will be given an apartment where you can both live together but for the remaining time of your of your college experience you're living separately in the singles dorms because they simply don't have enough money uh, to provide apartments where married people can live together. Um, And so the married students are making an especially huge sacrifice. Uh, Some of them traveled uh, by train, I believe it was over 30 hours, to get to Amrauti, to to come to this college and and to study here. So um, it was great to be able to meet them, to see face-to-face the people that we've been praying for for so long. They appreciate your prayers and they covet them. Uh, They asked me to ask you to continue praying for them and they thank you for your generosity. Um, We also saw the property for a new college campus and conference ground. Uh, Because the college campus is so tight, they can only hold 40 students, give or take, at a time. And uh, that campus is set to be expanded to hold 300 students. Um, And they can certainly fill it with 300 students. They turn away application after application every year because they simply do not have enough room to hold all of the people who want to learn about the Word of God. It is very rare to find a Bible college in India, especially one that the students can afford to attend. And so this school is in very high demand. And so the new campus that they're hoping to build will uh, enable that. It will also enable them to have a little bit more flexibility with their conferences. There were several things that were very inconvenient about the conference grounds we were at. We were renting out a hotel. Um, It also... uh, had some negative impacts with the community because the people who typically rent out the hotel are not doing it for good purposes. Uh, there's a lot of drug dealing and prostitution that usually goes on out of that hotel. And so it makes Christians appear to be like the other people who are renting out the hotel. So the first thing that they're going to be doing is building new conference grounds on, on this land. And we got to visit the land, uh, go up on the on the hillside above it and survey the land and see where all the different buildings were going to be laid out. Right now there are just a few buildings. The main one would be the children's home. Uh, right now there are 25 children living there. Most of them are the children of Christian ministers who are in a situation where they cannot support their children in their ministry. Uh, oftentimes they can't afford to feed their children because there's no income in Christian ministry in India. Uh, other times they're in situations that are simply not safe enough to have children around and they have to send them to this children's home where they're given a good education and a loving foster family to take care of them in the time that their parents cannot. Um, as we surveyed this land, I asked John, how much is it going to take to expand this this campus? How much is it going to take? They have two acres right now, and they have all sorts of plans for what they're going to build there, a widow's home, the, the college, uh, places for teachers to stay, places for itinerant teachers to stay. So when we send another teacher to India, once they have the campus built, there'll be a place to stay right on campus rather than at a hotel miles away from everyone else. Um, and he told me $621,000 will do that. Uh, I'm not here today to say, you know, we need to get this together, but really with how many people there are here and what the kind of means we have in America, this would be an easy thing for us to accomplish. And I'd like you to pray over the next few weeks how... God might use you to accomplish that goal. Specifically, they're looking for, I think, $15,000 to finish the conference grounds by the end of January. The reason for that is that's the next conference, and they don't want to ever go back to that hotel again. So they're moving forward. They don't have any of the money in that they need for it, but they're moving forward with construction on faith that God will provide for those needs. And so, again, I'd ask that you would pray about how you might be a part of providing for those needs. I'd also like to thank you if you have been a part of providing for their needs in the past, as well as for Amy and my needs in getting to India. We really appreciate the sacrifices many of you made uh, to send us there. We could not have done this without the financial and really even more so the prayer support of you all. And we really want to say thank you for that. And and, uh, we appreciate that very much. We on Monday, the conference started and uh, coincidentally, that was the day I got sick (laughs) Uh, Horrible timing. Uh, But God was sovereign over it all. So I was not able to go to the opening ceremonies on Monday. But India, culturally, is very different. They are very big on greetings and conclusions when it comes to, well, anything. Uh, especially conferences. So we had a whole what, four-hour session just of an opening session where no one's really doing a whole lot of teaching or anything else. It's just an introductory session. These are all the people who are going to be teaching, uh, getting to know each other, that sort of thing. And then we had an even longer, probably an eight-hour concluding session on Friday uh, where we thanked everyone probably three or four times who had had anything to do with the conference. Uh, that's a very big thing in India. You, if anybody does anything at all for you, including coming to your conference, you need to thank them many times for it. And so uh, I was not able to attend the opening ceremony, but fortunately that wasn't um, a time where I would have had a real integral part, part to play. Um, during the conference, I had three opportunities to preach. Uh, they were all in, all in the morning. Monday morning, I was supposed to preach every morning as the opening session, uh, and that meant that both the men and the women would be in that session for the other sessions they were split and so I was supposed to preach from eight thirty to ten o'clock and Monday I got to uh, we got there late as we did all pretty much everywhere we went in India. We got there at nine o 'clock, so I go out to preach and I hurry up so that I can get done by 10 o'clock, which was the time I was supposed to end. And I get done preaching through second Timothy one 12, and I get done and John says, wow, that was really fast. Could you do that fast every morning? And I said, well, yeah, I guess I can, you know, trim stuff off of my sermons. I can do that. And he said, yeah, 8:30 is way too early in the morning for Indians to be doing anything. Uh, Indian culture is a much later culture than ours. You go to work at about 10 o'clock in the, in the, in the morning usually. Um, and you don't usually go to bed until sometime after midnight. Um, Shopping is done like between 8 and midnight, uh, and that's also the social time. So he said, you know, if we could bump that back just a half hour, that would help them a lot um, to be a lot – more we're comfortable with what's going on. So I said, I can do that. Well, Tuesday, since we decided we would start at 9 then, uh, of course, we got there at 9.30. So now I'm really, okay, I trimmed my hour and a half sermon, this which is with translation. So 45-minute sermon down to an hour or half an hour in English. Now I have a half an hour with translation, which means it needs to be 15 minutes in English. How can I get this extra 15 minutes trimmed off? And so I flew through my sermon. Uh, as fast as I could. I was preaching on second Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and really moved through it, and, uh, I got done, and evidently they had planned on me going for the full hour that they had allotted me. Because I got done, and they were scrambling for what do we do next? It's not time for us to get on to the next thing. Fortunately, though, I mean, God was completely in control. It was actually a great opportunity for all the pastors to share what they did and where they had come from, um, and their names and that sort of thing which both shows their importance, we are trying to convey to them how important they are and what they are doing is, and also gives them an opportunity to connect with one another and introduce themselves to each other because they didn't all know each other. There were 300 of them uh, from all over India. And so that was a really great opportunity. Thursday, my final opportunity to preach a full sermon. I'm driving over there, and John Cook tells me, "You know, Mitch, you went way too fast yesterday. You did a good job, but you really need to slow things down. Really expand on it a lot. I want you to take the full hour and a half today. I want you to just drive this home." And it was convenient because I was preaching on Second Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, etc. And uh, so that's an easy verse to really expound on the value of the Word of God. And so I told him, "Yeah, I can do that. No problem. I can I can hammer it home and keep going for a long time." So we get there at about nine fifteen, nine twenty. I started preaching late like normal. And so I'm planning on taking the full hour and a half, even though I'm starting way late. Uh, and at about ten fifteen, ten twenty. Um, I was probably three-quarters of the way done, and John Cook had left to go back to our hotel. He had some matters to attend to there. And John Ingole, who is the leader of the the ministries in India, he's the national there, uh, walks up to the podium, which is really not uncommon while you're preaching. It's not real formal like this. Uh, and slips a note onto the podium and walks off. And I look down as I'm done with my next point and and Promode, my translator is translating it, and it says, time up, 10 a.m., with an underline underneath it. So I went, oh, great. So I've stretched all this out, and now the the ending part is really like the the drive-at-home part, the best part of the sermon, and he's telling me to land the plane now. Uh, And so I was just like, what am I going to do? And Promode looks over to me, and he says, Mitch, you're doing well. He cares about the schedule too much. Promote is his son-in-law, by the way. He cares about the schedule too much. You keep going. So I finished up my sermon, and John Ingele is over here just about to ready to pull his hair out. I get done, and he, you should not go so long, because when you do, it backs up everything else in the schedule. You cannot do this. So uh, he wasn't real happy with me. but uh, So I was able to preach three times through second, uh, different passages in Second Timothy. Uh, I was also given a concluding statement on Friday where we really just thanked the pastors. I went through 2 Timothy 4, verse uh, I think 4 through 6, really just some of Paul's concluding statements and wishes to Timothy that he conveys at the end. It was a real blessing for me to be able to study these texts for so long and to take them in. And the pastors um, told me that they really appreciated them and that they, they would uh, had taken that to heart. Uh, At the end of the conference, we also were able to have a Bible quiz, uh, which was really cool. Indians are highly competitive. Uh, it, which you wouldn 't guess because they 're fairly quiet, um, you know not real outgoing people, but they are crazy competitive, and usually Bible quizzing here is like for children you know high schoolers maybe and maybe even college students, but you wouldn 't see like a fifty year old man jumping up and down at a Bible quiz. You would in India, and we did in India. Um, they were all very excited, and uh, it was great to see the Bi- especially the Bible college students who were there show off how much that they had learned from the Word of God, and it was reassuring to know that they were taking that in. They were absorbing that knowledge. Um, the, the thing that really struck me about all the people at the conference was how thirsty for the word of God they were. I am not a highly trained preacher or expositor of the word of God by any means, not highly experienced by any means. And, uh, yet they were still very thankful that I was able to come and bring them the word of God because it's so rare that they have someone with any training teaching whatsoever. Um, and so if any of you have any sort of training or, or even if you don't have training, but have experience in the word of God, I would encourage you to consider talking to John about how you might be a partner in future conferences. Um, he really values teachers of the word of God who will bring the word and, and the people there are incredibly thankful for that. We left Amrouti on Saturday, as I said, for Delhi, uh, and we were supposed to, we had tourist visas. So we need to do some sort of tourism, right? Otherwise, it's going to look a little fishy. Uh, So we had planned to go see the Taj Mahal, which is in Agra. Uh, If Delhi is right here, Agra is here. And so we were going to take a train, which is how you really do most of your getting around in India, to Agra. It was a a two-and-a-half-hour train ride. We got to the train station kind of late. It was like 6 in the morning. We were all exhausted and tired, and I was sick. Uh, and we got on the train. It had the same train name. We were pretty sure we saw Agra on the outside. But two hours into the train ride, the conductor still hadn't come to take our tickets, uh, which is really rare. Usually they're real prompt getting on because they want to make sure they're getting paid for everybody who's on the train. Uh, and we thought, well, that was kind of odd. Fortunately, D. Cook was with us. And uh, so the conductor came a little bit after two hours and took our tickets from D. And he looks at the tickets and he tells Dee, oh, so sorry, ma'am. You have boarded it incorrectly. And we all hear this and we go, boarded incorrectly. Okay, well, we're probably in the wrong car. Maybe we're like in second class. We're supposed to be in third class. Uh, so maybe we'll have to pay a little bit more for these seats or something like that, you know. Worst case scenario, right? And and Indian train tickets are not expensive. Worst case scenario, we'll owe them ten bucks. Uh, no. Actually, we had gotten on the wrong train. Uh, our train was a two and a half hour train to Agra. The train we were on was a five hour train to Jaipur. And uh, so he said, you're going to Jaipur. What's Jaipur? You know? <laughs> Where are we going? And when's the next train back to Delhi? Because our flight out was supposed to be about three hours after we got back to Delhi. Uh, that was our flight to Jordan. And so uh, we were a little bit concerned about that. Fortunately, there was a train ride back, and we went to Jaipur, which is the, city- the palaces of the Raj." Uh, are there and we got to explore those. That was really cool. I really enjoyed it. Uh, there's pictures of that on the back table as well as the conference. We are going to have a video after the service. It's 15 minutes long, so I didn't want to take up that time showing it uh, during the service. But you're, if you're interested in seeing it, it's just got pictures of some of the things that we did. Uh, you'll see all of us being greeted with these uh, uh, marigold garlands, which is a, a formal greeting in India for anyone who you want to bestow honor on. Um, and so you'll see that in the video. Uh, And that's going to play after the service. Well, as I mentioned, I preached on 2 Timothy in India, and I started in chapter 1, verse 12, and that's where we're going to start today. So if you would turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12. Actually, I'm sorry, we're going to start reading in verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word and your spirit, you have empowered us to know you. Pray right now that your spirit would come down on me Give me the understanding of your tr- the truth that is in your word and the clarity of mind and speech to be able to proclaim it to your people. Pray also that you would come down on your people and open their ears so that they might hear. For without your power, I can neither speak nor can they hear your truth. And finally, Lord, would your spirit grant us the ability to live by this word, Lord, that we might understand it and apply it in our lives in a way that is glorifying to you. In your name, amen. Well, I mentioned in India that I had the opportunity to visit several churches. One of the churches was at a village called Walgau. We went there late at night, uh, and the pastor there, his name was Galai, And uh, it was a little bit deceiving being there because we were crammed into this little room. They don't have their own church building. They're meeting in someone's patio. And uh, people just crammed in. And from the looks of things, you would have thought that Gaway had a massive church in this village. Um, especially considering the village's small size, you would have really just thought that he had, had done very well and had a very successful church. That actually was not the case. You've got to be kidding me. 38 minutes. Thank you, John Ingoe slash Chad. Pastor Gaway actually did not have a very successful church. Uh, given the size of his village, uh, his church was very small. The people that were actually cramming into this little building that we were in were cramming there simply because there were white people there. They were not believers. Uh, actually, there were probably very few church members there at all uh, because he had very few church members. And normally when they met in this patio, uh, it was mostly empty. Um, and Pastor Gaway had been there for many years. He had been laboring to plant a church in Walgau for a long time. Long enough that it would be reasonable for him to expect to see a little bit more fruit in his village. Gaway faced amazing shame for that. And in India, shame is the worst of all fates. There's nothing worse than being ashamed. And from the village's perspective, he deserved to be ashamed. He had abandoned Hinduism for this other religion that was not Indian... And then on top of that, he had failed to have anyone else come with him, really, or anyone take possession of that church plant. And so he faced great shame. We also face the potential for shame. We face a risk of shame when we're considering going out and doing something. We also face uh, shame when we have apparently failed at something. We have to deal with shame that is there and present in our lives. We face it primarily in our ministries. John Cook is a missionary, and he has a ministry to India and and I don't know if I can name off all the countries, Lebanon, Egypt, Iraq, um, Nepal, Indonesia, and I'm probably missing some. He has huge potential for failure, especially when he's reaching out to all these countries. Some of the churches that he plants or that he, he sets up will fail. Some of them will turn into Horrible heresies. That's going to happen. That's a that's a when you're planting that many churches, you can just bet on it happening. Happening, and so he has potential for huge failure. You know, we have potential for failure in our own ministries, too. Even if you're what the the traditional church term of layperson might describe and you don't necessarily take possession of any ministry at this church, you have a ministry. If you're married, you have a ministry to your spouse, husbands. The Bible is clear that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and wash them with the water of the word. And that is a ministry to them. Wives are to adorn themselves in their household in godliness. And that is a ministry to their husbands and to all who come into their households. And in both of those, we face potential for failure. And if you've been at it long enough, you've probably had to deal with a parent failure. I've only been married two years, and I know that I've had to deal with that. And we face that shame of failing in ministry. For those of you who, are, who have children or who may be considering having children in the near future, parenthood is a ministry. We are to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we face failure in that. We can fail, and we've seen that, I think, in people around us, and maybe even in our own lives, that kind of a failure. And that's, we, we face shame because of that. If you're not married, you have a ministry. Well, even if you are married, you have a ministry to everyone around you, to your neighbors and coworkers, to be proclaiming the gospel to them constantly in such a way that they might believe. And you face failure. You face huge potential for failure with that. I think all of us probably know what it is to have presented the gospel to someone and just be rudely rejected because of it. Maybe even to lose friends over it, lose family over it. We face that potential for failure. And Paul, as he was writing this letter to Timothy, was had both of these types of of risk of failure in mind. You see, he had an apparent failure. He says, he says um, that he is not ashamed. And he says he's not ashamed of his sufferings, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. Why would he follow suffering with shame? I mean, we sort of, as Christians, value suffering. Uh, if, If you've heard of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine or organization, they highlight those who are suffering for Christ in other countries, that we might pray for them, that their suffering might be alleviated, but that we might praise God most of all for them, that he has granted them worthy to suffer for the cause and given them the endurance to suffer for his name. Because when we suffer for something, it shows how valuable it is. And when we suffer for God, it shows how valuable he is. But Paul follows suffering here with, but I am not ashamed. And so this is an odd thing to read in the Bible. Paul, are you ashamed of? Are you tempted to be ashamed of your sufferings? All the times that you have suffered and been beaten for the word of God, are you ashamed of that now at the end of your life? Well, I don't think that's exactly what Paul was talking about. He had suffered worldly loss for the sake of the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he outlines that. Verses 23 through 27 say, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If anyone had suffered worldly loss for the sake of the gospel, it was Paul. He certainly had that. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. It's easy to think that because those sufferings are very obvious in the life of Paul. And and it's very obvious that he suffered often. If you read through the book of Acts, I think every other chapter has him getting beaten in it. And so it's easy to see that. But I think what he's talking about here is suffering in his apparent failure in ministry. He was in prison in verse 16 of chapter 1. We read, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Again, in chapter 2, verse 9, we read, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul was imprisoned. This was not like his first imprisonment in Rome. In his first imprisonment, he was under house arrest. And so he pretty much had the ability to have any guests into his house, to teach them, to preach, anything he wanted to do from his house. Very comfortable. This was not like that. He was probably in what is called the Mamertine prison. It is a hole in the ground. Uh, it's not tall enough for a grown man to stand up straight. So he would have been hunched over most of the time. It was probably very crowded as it was used often for political dissidents at the time. And there was just a hole large enough in the ceiling to let fresh air in as well as rain and whatever else might fall through. It was very cold. And we read later in the in the book that he's asking Timothy to bring him some warmer clothes. So is he talking here about his physical sufferings? I don't think so. Even though he had them, even at the point, the problem with being in this prison was it looked like he had failed. It wasn't how much it hurt and how uncomfortable it was that Paul was tempted to feel shame for. Instead, he was tempted to feel shame because of the apparent failure of his ministry to proclaim the gospel to the world. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he writes to Timothy, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fagellus and Hermogenes, all who are in Asia. We don't know much about these people, Phagellus and Hermogenes, but it's likely that they were disciples of Paul, that he had trained them up to be church leaders. And after training them up and pouring years of his labor, blood, sweat, and tears into them, they had abandoned him. Not only had they abandoned him, but they had turned to false doctrine and led all the churches in Asia astray with them. Churches that Paul himself had planted and labored over had been led off astray by these people, and he had been abandoned by them. As if that wasn't enough, he was imprisoned in Rome. And in verse, in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Here was Paul who had planted countless churches all around the Mediterranean Sea, had countless disciples, and when he goes to jail, no one stands by him. He had had a church in Rome. He may or may not have planted that church, but we know that he wrote an epistle to it. We're we're, we're walking through that epistle now in Romans chapter 4. He had written a letter to this church. No one from the church in that very city where he was in prison came to him. He was completely abandoned. And it would be easy in that situation to think that God's abandoned me. I've completely failed. My ministry is a failure. Everything that I did, all of the beatings, all of the sufferings were for nothing because now I'm in prison. The gospel has died outside of prison and I'm going to die inside prison. That's the situation that Paul faced. And as he wrote this letter to Timothy, he was sort of handing the torch off to Timothy, telling him, it's now your turn to run with this. And so... He's encouraging Timothy because while Paul is looking back and facing apparent failure in ministry, Timothy is looking forward and facing that potential. The one who went before him seems to have failed miserably at this point. And now he's to step into that man's shoes and continue that ministry on. It'd be hard for me to find motivation to do that. If I'm just going to fail... Why invest all this stuff? I, I'm gonna, this is gonna cost me a lot to do this. If it's gonna fail, I'm not interested. No thanks, Paul. And that's what Paul was trying to motivate Timothy to stay away from, was that fear of shame. As the world saw Paul, they told, saw what he was and what he had become. They said, you were a Pharisee. You were the most, the highest of the religious elite. You were powerful and revered because of that. But now, You have left all that. And what have you gotten? You are now a beaten prisoner. Instead of being powerful, you are despised by all who see you. And instead of being revered, you are abandoned by everyone who ever worked with you. And so Paul faced this. We have to face the same kind of potential for shame, and sometimes the very same type of shame in our lives, and our ministries. I mentioned parents trying to raise their children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. What do you do when your unmarried teenage daughter gets pregnant? How do you deal with that? It's an apparent failure. It happens. And it's not always the parent's fault. Sometimes you could have labored ceaselessly for this child to raise her in the way that God would have you and still they can go astray. How do you deal with that? What do you say about that? When you're witnessing to co-workers and they reject the gospel and are rude to you or even worse, they point to your sin and say, because of what you have done, I will never be a Christian because I will never be like that. I think some of us have had that happen. I've had that happen to me. How do you deal with that? How do you move on? How do you deal with the potential for that? When you're thinking about witnessing to someone and you think, man, you know, I haven't always been the best person around them. What if that turns them off to the gospel? Maybe I should just keep it a secret that I'm a Christian. That way they won't dislike Christians because of me. That logic can seep into your head and it is wrong. And Paul's telling Timothy to fight that. You know, all, all of us, many of us really have come together to plant this church, Sovereign Grace Church of Bakersfield. It didn't exist two years ago. And we've left churches that we were in where we had roots and family and good long-term friends and ministries to come here. What would happen if it failed? And it could. We're still very young. We don't even have a building of our own yet. This church could fall apart in a year. How do we deal with that risk? If it happens, how do we move on? We can't just drop God and say, well, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore because the church plant failed. How do you deal with that kind of failure once it's happened? Chad and Kevin would be without jobs. We would have to find a way to support Chad's family or Chad really probably would have to find a way to support Chad's family. Uh, I'd like to think that some of us would help him with that. All of the time and money and tears that have been invested in this church over the last few years would seem to have been a waste and gone to nothing. And where would all of us go? We have left, in many cases, the churches where we were founded to come and plant this church. Where do we go now? This has become our home. And now our home would be gone. Furthermore, we are almost the sole supporters of Grace Bible College. There are a few other supporters who support on a very small scale, but primarily it's us. What happens to Grace Bible College when Sovereign Grace Church falls apart? I'd like to think that some of you would take care of that, Uh, that some of us would still have the faithfulness to God to carry on the ministry in India. And I hope that you would consider that if that ever happens, if you ever find yourself in that situation, because what's going on over there is valuable. But we face huge potential for failure at this church. It's a gigantic risk, which all of us need to consider as we come here. And we have to deal with that potential for failure. Dan Healy has gone over to Africa He has so many places that he could fail there. I don't think I can count them. His health has never been good. And now he's going to a foreign country with all new types of diseases and bugs. And that was his primary concern as we spoke to him a few weeks ago. He said, I could be back in four months if my health doesn't hold. But I want to be there for at least four years. He also faces failure if he doesn't understand the culture well well enough or the language well enough or if he doesn't get along with the missionaries well enough. Missionaries face all sorts of opportunities to fail. And many times they do fail. How do we deal with that? How do you move on and continue rejoicing in the Lord after you have stepped out in faith and gotten smacked down by failure? It happens and we have to move on. First, we need to understand with this that there are two types of shame, right and wrong shame. Sometimes it is good to feel shame, and we see that all throughout the scripture. Paul told the Corinthian church on two occasions to be ashamed. In 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-four, he said, Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. He also says, in 1 Corinthians six five, he's talking about them not being able to resolve disputes among themselves. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? He's shaming that church and telling it, it is good for you to feel ashamed right now. In Psalms twenty five three, we read that those who stand against the Lord will be ashamed. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are indeed wantonly treacherous. You see, that verse has two types of shame. Those who wait on God are not ashamed, and those who stand against Him should be ashamed. Isaiah forty one eleven again. We read, "Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish." On the other hand, sometimes we read in Scripture that it's wrong to feel shame. In Romans chapter one verse sixteen, which we went over about a year ago now, uh, Paul says, "Yeah, I know. It's been a while." Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He was avoiding shame. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, just a few verses before where we are today, Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, I just blended two verses. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There we go. Mark 8.38, Jesus himself told his disciples not to be ashamed. He said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. He couldn't say it more strongly. Don't be ashamed of me. And so we must understand the difference between proper shame and improper shame, because the difference seems to be here one of life and death. The deciding factor is, were your actions shameful? If your actions were dishonoring or defaming God, you should be ashamed. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief is that when you have dishonored God, you feel ashamed of it because that will motivate you to repent and to not do that again. However, there is worldly grief as well that we read about in this verse. When we are ashamed of something that we have done for God, for Paul to be ashamed of his years of faithful ministry all throughout the Mediterranean would have been wrong. It would have been sinful. And 2 Corinthians says it produces death. And so that's the type of shame that we are trying to avoid that Paul is telling us about here. John MacArthur writes about this shame He says, no matter how gifted a person may be or how well-trained, biblically literate, astute or articulate, and no matter how much opportunity or privilege he may have, if he lacks spiritual courage and commitment, he will not speak and act effectively for the Lord. If you are ashamed, you will not be an effective servant for God, and that will produce death in you. So, how was it that Paul overcame this temptation, this great temptation to be ashamed? First, he writes, For I know whom I have believed. Paul knew God. What does it mean that Paul knew God? We use the word know for everything in English, so we really need some clarification here. I mean, I know the plot line of the story lost. I know certain points of theology. I know my wife. I know some things about George Bush. There are a lot of different ways that we can know. So let's read about Paul's knowledge of God in Acts chapter 16. I'd like it if you could turn there with me to verse 22. Paul and Silas had just arrived in Philippi. Uh, They'd been there for several days, getting ready to plant a church, trying to find believers and converts to Christianity who they could depend on to serve with them. Uh, And they had been followed around by a demon-possessed girl who was constantly harassing Paul. Uh, This demon-possessed girl was a slave, and she had been owned by someone who was profiting off of the demon in her, using him for divination and sorcery and prophecy. And so Paul finally gets so frustrated at this demon that he turns around and casts him out of the girl. And because of that, the slave owners could no longer profit off of their slave, and so they took him to court. And the court immediately was thrown into chaos by what Paul had done. We read in verse 22, The crowd joined in attacking them, that is Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Did you hear that? Their clothes were torn from them. They were beaten with sticks. And then they were thrown into the inner prison and chained probably to one another. Well, I don't know, Paul, what do you want to do? Silas, I don't know, what do you want to do? How about we worship God? Where did that decision come from? That's not the decision I would have made. I would have been saying, let's yell at that jailer and tell him he has no right to imprison us here. We are Roman citizens and he cannot do this to us. Paul could have done that. Paul could have complained about the conditions. Paul could have just wept over his failure in ministry and over the potential that if he was executed for this, where does the gospel go from here? He could have descended into just misery, but instead of, a, instead of descending into self-pity and shame, they knew God. And so they ascended into a joyful exaltation of his name. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul had of his God. And that's the kind of knowledge that was able to keep him from shame. Paul was not saying, you notice, that he knew facts about God. He didn't get into the jail and start reciting the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is great. However, that's not what he did. Paul's knowledge of God was an intimate and personal acquaintance with the immensity of the glory of God. Now the hymns that Paul and Silas were singing would have had theological truth in them. They were not void of doctrine. I am not telling you to avoid doctrine in the least bit, embrace it, learn it, know it. But they didn't simply express that doctrine factually. They were expressing it joyfully. And that is the key. You see, An intellectual knowledge of God is necessary to know Him, but that knowledge becomes trivial and useless if it does not extend beyond the intellect to the heart. That's the kind of knowledge you need of God. You need the foundation of doctrine simply to be able to know Him. I very well could not tell you that I know my wife if I could not tell you anything about her. If I told you her wrong birthday, wrong eye color, wrong hair color, wrong height, you might look at me and say... She's your wife, right? How, do you, how did you miss this stuff? I wouldn't know her if I didn't know those things. Likewise, to know God, you should know about him. But the knowledge cannot stop there. It must abound into joyful praise coming from your heart. And that's the kind of knowledge Paul is talking about here. Some of you are taking a, systemat- a systematic theology class. I am not condemning you for that. I am encouraging you to continue on in that. Continue on in your studies of who God is, getting to know the facts about him, but by no means continue on in the study if the facts are going to stop here because they are useless and trivial. They will only inflate your ego and your pride. But if that knowledge descends into your heart and affects your soul, you will know God and you will realize that the things that you are learning should not make you prideful, but should make you humble. That's the kind of knowledge Paul is dealing with here. Paul knew that God had accepted him. We covered what the world had said about what Paul had been and what he had become. Now let's cover what God said about what Paul had been and what he had become. He said, first of all, Paul, you were a persecutor of the church. You were self-righteous, constantly building up your own righteousness to try to get in as if, though, that could get you into heaven. It was never good enough, but you always tried to make it good enough. And what's worse, you were a stranger to the covenant love of God. You were outside of it, excluded from it. But now, Paul, you are a leader of the church rather than a persecutor. You have my indwelt righteousness in you rather than striving to seek your own. And instead of being a stranger to the covenant love of God, you're in that covenant as a son of God. Paul knew what God said about him and that is greatly encouraging when the world tells us we are a failure. Even when it appears that our ministry has failed, when we remember what God says about us, we are infinitely better off as we are than what we were. And that knowledge will keep us from failure. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about what we were and what we've become. In verse 1 it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. We are infinitely better than we were. No matter what sufferings and failures we experience as Christians, we are infinitely better off as Christians. And we need to continue to praise God for what he has made us after what we were. John Calvin writes about this knowledge of God. He says, This is the only place of refuge to which all believers ought to resort, namely to reckon it enough that God approves of them. Amidst every storm and tempest, that man will enjoy undisturbed peace who has a settled conviction of God that God, who cannot lie or deceive, has spoken and will undoubtedly perform what he has promised. On the other hand, he who has not this truth sealed on his heart will be continually shaken here and there like a reed. This passage is highly worthy of attention. Shouldn't have looked up. Because it expresses admirably the power of faith when it shows that even in desperate affairs we ought to give God such glory as not to doubt that he will be true and faithful. Let us always remember that Paul does not pursue this philosophical speculation in the shade but having the reality before his eyes solemnly declares how valuable is a confident hope of eternal life. That's the knowledge of God that Paul has. And that's the knowledge that we need. But what about this knowledge makes it something that will keep us from shame? You know, okay, so I know I'm acquainted with God. I could still be ashamed, right? Not if you know God, Paul knew God's history. He knew that this was the God who created everything that exists. He knew that this was the God who called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and made a covenant with him to bless all people through his seed. He knew this was the God who raised Moses up to lead the Israelites out of captivity. He knew this was the God who gave Moses the law, the God who knocked down the walls of Jericho from the inside, the God who made a covenant with David to place his seed on the throne forever, the God who preserved a remnant of Israel through their captivity, the God who kept his servants from the fiery furnace, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day and the God who took a persecutor of the church and made him an apostle. He knew God's history. He also knew God's character. He knew that God's knowledge is limitless. Before the beginning of time, God was. His reign will have no end. His will is irresistible. His salvation is irrevocable. His promises are certain. His love is without measure. His wrath is unquenchable. His justice, unquestionable. His mercy is unfailing. His grace is sufficient for His power is made perfect in weakness. Paul knew this God. And that is the way that we need to know him. Do you want to overcome the fear of failure? Do you want to move on from a past apparent failure? Know this God. And he is known through scripture. So pour yourself into the word and know this God. All this knowledge that Paul had was great. It was wonderful. But Knowing all these wonderful attributes of God, and even knowing that God actually had these attributes, these loving, kind, and faithful attributes, would have been pointless unless God had the power to accomplish what he promised. And so Paul continues on. He says, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. If you're following along in your ESV, you might be wondering why I said uh, what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's not what you're reading in your Bibles there. There is a translation difference there. The ESV says, to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Literally, the Greek text here is saying, to guard my deposit until that day. And so the translators are trying to decide, well, what is my deposit? Is it something I gave to God or God gave to me? What is my deposit? There, the reason that the ESV does this is because in verse 14, we see the same word. When Paul says, tell, tells Timothy, guard the good deposit by the Holy Spirit which dwells in you. Well, it's obviously a deposit that Timothy is in possession of at that point, because he's guarding it. Timothy is guarding it by the Holy Spirit. Again, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he says, guard the deposit, turning away from profane chatter. And it's clear again that this is something Timothy is in possession of. However, in both other occurrences, it is Timothy who guards the deposit. And that's why it's Timothy who is in possession of the deposit. In this occurrence, it's God will guard the deposit. And therefore, I believe God is in possession of the deposit. This is in in, uh, in uh, agreement with the New American Standard and NIV, as well as the King James Version, New King James, all go with this direction. And so we see, he writes, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him, that uh, uh, entrusted to him until that day. What is this ability of God? It's dunatos, which means the power to accomplish. He has the power to accomplish guarding my deposit until that day. We read about this power in Daniel chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar, who had been a profaner of God, who had some would say even had set himself forward as God to be worshipped, had been humbled by God. And at the end of his humbling experience, he writes in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes up to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 148 verses five and six say, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 say, "...for the word of the, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers all the waters as a, of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm." 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, just two verses before where we're at right now, Paul writes, The gospel has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The power of God is such that He abolished death. That's the power, this ability to accomplish of God. John Calvin again writes of this passage, because the power and greatness of dangers often fills us with dismay or at least tempts our hearts to distrust. For this reason, we must defend ourselves with this shield, that there is sufficient protection in the power of God. In like manner, Christ, when he bids us cherish confident hope, employs this argument, the Father who gave you to me is greater than all. By which he means that we are out of danger, seeing that the Lord who has taken us under his protection is abundantly powerful to put down all opposition. Satan does not venture to suggest this though uh, this thought in a direct form, that God cannot fulfill or is prevented from fulfilling what he has promised. For our senses are shocked by so gross a blasphemy against God. But by preoccupying our eyes and understandings, he takes away from us all sense of the power of God. The heart must therefore be well purified that it may not only taste that power, but may retain the taste of it amidst temptations of every kind. We have to know this power of God. Paul was so convinced of God's ability to accomplish what he had promised that he spoke of his promises of the future as though they had already happened. In Romans 8.30, he writes, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul was not asserting here that he had been glorified and that he was now in heaven glorifying God in his glorified state. What he was saying is, God has promised it. And therefore, it is so true that I can speak of it as though it already happened because it might as well have. That's how... Faithful God is. That's how dependable God is. That is the power to accomplish of God. And He is powerful to accomplish. But He doesn't just write that God is, I believe God is powerful to accomplish or able to guard. He doesn't say, I'm pretty sure. Believe actually would have been a very appropriate term for this in New Testament usage. It was a word that was used a lot. I believe He is able but he doesn't say that he uses a more specific word. He says, I am convinced he is able conviction arises from experience. And Paul had a long history of experience with God that we have covered. And those experiences led Paul to the firm conviction that God was able to guard what we, what he had trusted. Do you want to overcome the fear of failure? Do you want to move on in light of a past apparent failure? Be convicted and be convicted by stepping out and getting experience with God. For experience will lead to the conviction that he is able to accomplish what he promised. Finally, we cover what God is guarding, this deposit that we talked about. He is able to guard until that day what I have committed to him. Well, certainly justification, sanctification, sustenance, life, breath, all those things Paul had entrusted to God. He had said, God, I trust you for these things. I'm not going to fight for my own justification anymore. I can't win it. I trust you for that. But here specifically in this context, remember he's dealing with apparent failure in ministry. And it seems what he's talking about is God is able to guard his ministry, which he had committed to the Lord. Paul commits his labors into God's hands, convinced that he is able to guard the fruits of his labors until the return of Christ. If you know him, if you are convinced that he is able to guard whatever you entrust to him, you will never fear or you will neither feel failure nor be ashamed of apparent failure in ministry. Paul writes this in first Corinthians ten thirty-one. He says, so whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you have done it to his glory, committed your ministry into his hands, then your apparent failure is nothing to be ashamed of for you have been faithful to God and committed it to Him. And He is able to guard that faithful labor. There's no need to feel shame and apparent failure in ministries. This conviction of God's ability to accomplish what He had promised is what led Paul in Romans chapter 8. If you could start turning there, it's what led him to crescendo. He started in God's promises at the beginning of chapter 8 and deals with His promises to believers. And by the end of chapter 8, he is built up to this passage, starting in verse 24, verse 28, I'm sorry. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed according to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And I would add to this list, or failure? Or failure? our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you first that you have given us the ability to know you, to worship you. And furthermore, God, that you are able to guard what we have committed to you. Help us to be so concentrated on you, that failure does not bother us in ministry, that we are able to move on glorifying you and laboring for you. We commit our labors for this church and in our other ministries to your hands now. We thank you that you love us, that you are faithful to us, and that you are able to accomplish everything you have promised. In your name, amen.